Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.
question, what will he do with me? And then another question after that would probably be, what did we do with him? I'd like to look over in Matthew if you want to follow along with us. Matthew, the 17th chapter. I think before we start, we'll just bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank thee tonight for this wonderful privilege that we have of coming to this place of worship to hear the wonderful words of Jesus, to hear the things that have been written in thy word and established We pray that God will help us, dear Father, this evening, that by thy grace we will have open hearts and ready minds, Lord, that we might receive the good things that will build us up in the faith and give us encouragement and help us to be those that would be witnesses for thee. Just thank thee for thy tender mercy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I could better take care of a situation that I evidently forgot. I heard this thing beep, and we'll tell them what will happen if I don't get it shut down. So, supposed to leave them at home. <clears throat> Matthew, the 17th chapter, and I'd like to start reading <clears throat> in verse 14. <clears throat> and when they were come, To the multitude there came to him a certain man, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed, for all times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why did we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto him, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, faith is a grain of mustard seed. Ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. I believe I'll stop right there. I had to think of this situation that this man found himself in. He was a a parent, and evidently he was a loving parent. He loved his children. Um, He wasn't like some parents that we see today that is just like to, I've heard him talk about just, Get the rats out from under my feet. 
Just get them out of, out of the house. Let them run. Let them play. Let them grow up. Um, I believe he was a loving parent. I believe he loved his children. And it says that he came to Jesus kneeling down, and he said, Lord, have mercy on my son. Recording stop. He is lunatic, vexed. Oftentimes he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not, heal, could not cure him. He had a situation that he didn't know how to handle in himself, but he went to the right place. He went to Jesus. He described his poor child falling into the fire, falling into the water. And now here he brought him to the disciples and they couldn't cure him. He's begging for mercy to God. You know, I believe that when we come to the same place that this man, his father, came to, where he was earnestly pleading for help. In this situation, it was for his son. And whether it's for our child or if it's for ourselves or our neighbor, someone we're concerned about, that we have that effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. And back in James it mentioned about that effectual, fervent, forever righteous man in the fifth chapter in verse 16. And not only did it speak about the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, it didn't say a man that just sort of Thing. It's something that's tremendous. And even ourselves, as we think about ourselves, every one of us have needs here this evening. And probably as the speaker brings out the word, the Holy Spirit is so faithful to speak to this one and that one and another one, using the same scripture, dealing with each one of our specific needs, the, the places where we need to move up spiritually, the places where we need to back off from the direction we're going in it and be sure on the straight and narrow way. <clears throat> it's very serious. It's not a plaything. Our eternity is at stake. Recordings.
If we missed it, I heard one old preacher say, if we missed it, we've missed everything. If we miss heaven, we've missed everything. This man came to Jesus and he was crying out for mercy. And he said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long will I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. May the Lord help us to have faith. And then he speaks about the faith as a grain of mustard seed. If you have that kind of faith, he said that you can say to a mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it will remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. How many of us have seen God move the mountains out of our own lives? Those big mountains that we just felt like it's standing in the way, we can't go any further, this thing is blocking my way. But as we cried out to God, God laid the old mountain down and showed us the way through, and we had victory. But there again, it was through the power of God. It wasn't through our cunningness or through anything that we could do, but it's when we find ourselves flat on on our face at the foot of the cross and just opening ourselves up to God and saying, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The disciples came to Jesus then, and they said, What? Why couldn't we cast him out? And Jesus simply told them, it's because of your unbelief. And I don't know what it was that at other times they were healing people, they were doing different things because of the power of God, but there's something took place here. And then he told them, he said, one of the secrets, as Brother Joe mentioned it last night, to keep on praying, keep on bringing our petition before the throne of grace. And it's not that God won't move, but it's because he wants us to get in a place where we can move and be in a place where God can answer prayer. Albeit this kind of not out, but by prayer fasting. And it seems like in the day we're living in, we don't know much about fasting anymore. I hope that, that we do fast. And I hope that this is something that will encourage us to get along with God, steal away, and open our hearts to him and pray that God will come and have his way. Let's kneel in prayer. Father, tonight, as we come before you, so thankful for the provision Thou hast made that we can become children of the King. So thankful for the precious blood of Jesus that has been shed and the way it's been prepared so that every one of us will be here tonight and be our children to make it safely into the city of God. Oh, Father, we pray that thou will speak to everyone of our hearts. Help us, Lord, that when the call goes out, that we might answer the call and that we might be the working and the moving of God among us, Lord, we pray. We pray that conviction from the Holy Spirit will come down in our midst, Lord, and cause the sinners to tremble and the saints to rejoice. Help each one of us, Lord, to give of our best to the master, we pray. Even as Brother Joseph preaches, O oh Lord, may he sense our special help tonight. 
Each one of us be in a prayerful attitude and pray for Brother Joe as he brings the word. And let's be quick to obey what we hear to this evening. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. One thing that blesses me so much, and one reason that I'm so excited to be a Christian tonight, is because I know positively what Christ will do with me as I give myself. Tonight, I don't care what age you are. I don't care what experiences you've had. I don't care where you find yourself. You can absolutely be certain how Christ is going to respond to your presence on that judgment day. And to me, that brings wonderful peace and comfort. Peace as long as I'm living for him, right? I'd be living for self. That would be a different matter. So welcome to each one in that precious name. I failed to announce this the first evening. I usually do this, and it's not that I the intent. So this isn't to promote laziness in any way. I'm trust and hope you don't have those people here anyway. But at the same time, if you would find it helpful for your own personal studies to have... Um, the master outline for any of the messages I preach, just get with me after the service. I do carry a sheet in my Bible, where if you give me your email address, I'll be happy to send those to you. I started doing that. I love seeing people take notes. I don't do that to discourage note-taking. I just do it in conjunction because I, especially some things as I phase into maybe a bit more technical messages here. Uh, if you would find that a blessing, feel free to ask for it. Also, I had a question. How many of you are short on sleep because of me? Anybody short on sleep? No? I'll have to keep seeing what I can do on that. I'm not sure tonight's going to score, but we'll see. Uh, how many of you have your wills in order? Will in order. Add a bit here, though.
there's different kinds of wills, evidently. Uh, I would guess most of you, when I said, do you have your will in order, you immediately started scrambling in your mind about some legal document. Uh, and I guess it's all right to have that in order. That's only nothing wrong with that. But the will I want to speak about tonight, I would propose, is quite a bit more important than any legal document that you can store in a file cabinet or in a bank anywhere. So my will, master or mastered? A.W. Tozer, in one of his messages, um, I almost forget why he used this illustration. I just remember the illustration, so I don't know if that's good or bad, but I thought I would uh, use it a little bit tonight. He said when he was about four or five years old, uh, I'm saying this in my own words, he said, I was out, ra I got to go rabbit hunting, I think it was with his dad. And he said as they walked through the field looking for a rabbit, he all of a sudden gave a little hop and squeal, and dad said, what, you, what is it? And he said, I almost. Saw a I almost saw a rabbit. In thinking of this thing of the will, I want to make the Christian life practical. I find that sometimes, depending on our temperament, depending on how we respond to life circumstances, we have two categories of people, and there are those that, when they're trying to serve Christ, they almost see rabbits. Then we have the other category that never sees any rabbit. So I know I'm seeking to walk a very, I feel to me, a bit of a thin line tonight. There are two natural tendencies in relating to self and self-will. So first and foremost, my goal is to, of course, teach the truth. But secondly, to promote thought. So if you come out a different place than I do on some of these thoughts, it doesn't necessarily fit, because praise God, wisdom by no means dies with Joe. At the same time, if you are promoted into a thought, then at least part of my uh, goal is achieved. Also in that, though, it would be my prayer, and I appreciate your prayers down the same line, that I would in no way confuse, because like I said, this can be a bit of a thin line, it seems, or it's been made thin by some circumstances. You know, it seems at times to me that many Christians are focused on what they either should not do or else they're focused on all the liberty they have. And you find whole groups of churches totally dedicated to either promoting what should not be done or, just as likely, you have whole groups of churches who are focused on promoting what may be allowed. You know, the one group gets called conservative. The other group gets called liberal. The one edges toward legalism. The other promotes love and grace. So these two natural tendencies, we have the one who focus and respond in terror almost to flesh and its desires, and they feel guilty that there's a battle occurring in their life. I call those people sensitive, not in a bad way like sensitive people. I married one. And sometimes they struggle with the thought, I must not be a Christian because I'm facing a battle. I must not be a Christian because I'm tempted. 
And they struggle to believe 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, which says there's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able to bear, but will with the temptation make a way of escape. Then we also have those that excuse and justify themselves rather than fighting the battle of life. And their thought process goes something like this. Well, I'm not that bad. Everybody has needs. Everybody's got weak spots. After all, I have not committed adultery. I have not murdered anyone. You know, one is terrified that a battle needs fought. The other complacently thinks, or at least like one young man told me one time, I'd just rather not think about it. You know, if we are to effectively fight the battle of life, we have to realize where the battle line is drawn. If we are to fight the battle of life, it's fairly important to differentiate, and I hope you understand me here, between being born a human, something you had absolutely no choice in, and the accompanying fallen nature. Now, that said, you also didn't have a choice in the fallen nature, but you have a response to that fallen nature. Remember, it is a battle of control, for control of your heart and your life, of your deepest desires, affection. So let me ask you a question. What happens when self, self-will, is allowed to be in control? You know what happens? I have to give you a long explanation on it. We self-destruct. We self-destruct when we follow self and allow self to control our responses to life. Why don't you open your Bibles to Numbers? Numbers chapter 11 has some verses I want to read out of it. Meanwhile, I'm going to tell you about this group of people that we read about there. So there was once a large group of people who as slaves had every aspect of their lives controlled and dictated by their masters, even to the extent that if they had a son born, they were supposed to drown him. If they had a daughter, they could keep it to get more work done. Talk about being a slave. Harsh masters. Well, through numerous miraculous events, they were delivered from their masters. And they were led from the bondage of slavery and captivity to freedom and the promise of a new life and a new land. How wonderful. These probably millions of people, the best I can read, at least physically, were in bondage to something greater than the Egyptians. Just notice their journey through the wilderness. These millions of people, while physically free, were in bondage to a slave driver greater than what the Egyptians ever were. You know, they could not appreciate the one who had set them free. They could not appreciate his plan for them. It seems almost at every opportunity, they complained and they accused and despised him and his plan. You know, when they were followed, fairly out, fairly free, and they're followed by their former masters to be re-enslaved, what do they do? Do they say, oh, Lord, deliver us. Continue the work that you have begun. Is that what they said? They said, oh, no, oh, Moses, why didn't you just let us go? We're going to get killed. 
just stayed away. Why didn't you let us die in Egypt? You know, when the water ran low, a short time after seeing the most miraculous annihilation of an army that probably ever occurred in history, oh, God, we need some water. They ran short on water, and they began accusing and complaining, accusing God and their leader and complaining. In fact, they told Moses they threatened to stone him, kill him and get another leader and go back to Egypt. Well, go back to Egypt. They said, why did you bring us out here? You're just trying to kill us and our children with thirst. God, it was better to be a king. You know, when God at Mount Sinai tried to speak to them, they responded in fear and said, oh, don't let him speak to us. We can't handle it. Yet a few short days to weeks later, they made a golden calf, set it up there, are falling down and worship before it, and telling a stupid golden object that you, O oh golden calf, are the one who has delivered us. I wonder if you have the problem I do when I read the Old Testament. I've got a bit of a problem in that I Before I read these verses, I read some verses out of 1 Timothy chapter 3 last night. And I had a terrible list, didn't it? It talked about being covetous with maybe. But then I had this terrible list. Remember that list? But there was one in there that kind of scares me. I think I told you. And that one is unthankful. Keep that in mind as I read Numbers 11, chapter, excuse me, Numbers 11, verse 4 through 6. Maybe before I read that, I should tell you that just the number of people had been killed in the previous verses with fire for complaint. So now, you think that would fix the problem, but no. It didn't fix the problem with Israel, and I have to say, sad to say, when I'm living, when my master is the, excuse me, when my will is my master, it doesn't stop that. There. Numbers 11:4, And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt. Really, the cucumbers, or the melon, and the leek, and the onion, and the dart. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all besides it. Man. Go down to verse 10, please. Then Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, every man in the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses also was the chief. 13. Moses talking. When should I have flesh to give unto all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may eat. For Moses. We got to this story. 
throw that out there. And they said, oh, just, and they forgot all about having to drown their baby boys. They forgot all about the hard work. They just remembered the suppers they ate. And oh, if we could just eat that one. How about going down? Okay. Verse 31. 31, so God heard. And there went forth a wind from the Lord and brought quails from the sea and let them fall by the camp as it were a day's journey on this side and as it were a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp, as it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth. And the people stood up all that day and all that night and all the next day and they gathered the quail. And he that gathered the least, the littlest amount, gathered ten homers. So God heard these ungrateful people, and he sends a wind. I don't know how much you know about quail, but most of the quail I'm familiar with are not long-distance flyers, okay? So they're out in the desert, and God sent a wind big enough to blow maybe billions of quail into wherever they were here. Now, I don't know if hardly seems they were supposed to eat dead animals, so I guess when it says two cubits high, it was probably just a live fluttering with quail for 36 inches up. Can you imagine? Quail everywhere. Does he that gathered least gather ten omers? Uh, I don't know how your research would hold out. Mine, the best I could come up with, was an omer equals six and a half to eight bushels, and that's a conservative estimate. So using the lesser, the six and a half bushel per omer, each person, or likely it means each family, gathered 65 bushels of quail. Now, I don't know. You take a family with 13 children, they could probably go through quite a few quail, but 65 bushels. That's a lot of quail. A lot of quail. And we're not talking about deep breeds here, right? We're not talking about canning jars. We're talking about bushels. How do they expect to use Five bushels per family beats me, but that's what it says. And it says if they spread them all abroad for themselves round about the camp, could be possibly they were drying them. And then they got busy eating. And while the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of God was kindled against the people, and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. And he called the name of the place Tibros Hataba, because there they buried the people that lusted. So what is lust? What is lust? Isn't lust a using for self and self-gratification, things that were meant for something else, something better, something nobler, something higher, something pure? I know that generally in the way we use lust, we kind of use it in one connotation, but in reality, you can lust all sorts of ways. So lust. Using for self-gratification things that were meant for something else. And that brings up a couple verses in Psalm 106. You don't need to turn there, but you're welcome to. Psalm 106, verse 13 through 15, raises an interesting thought. Talking about this, these very experiences, it's uh, Psalm 106, in case you're not familiar, follows the journey of the Israelites through this time. And it says this about them. It says, they soon forget his work. 
that waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And here is what I'd like to raise a question about. And it says, and he, meaning God, gave them their request, but sent leanness unto their souls. So it starts out by telling us that Israel forgot God's work. They didn't wait on what he wanted. But they went ahead and lusted, desired things that were meant for something else, not that time and place. They tempted God by their complaint. Then it goes on to tell you that God gave them what they wanted, but sent famine. Now, for a question, does God still do that today? Does God sometimes give me what I desperately desire and lust after and pursue with all my might, but let me pay a price through spiritual weakness and even death? God allows that. Does God still at times grant my request? That which I think I so desperately want. That which I think would just make me so happy. Only to say. Let's define my will a bit. My will. As a noun, but not a legal document. A few synonyms. Desire, wish. Disposition, inclination, appetite, passion, choice, determination. Uh, we heard about that one word last night, didn't we? Uh, the dictionary definition kind of combined says, the mental powers manifested as wishing, choosing, desiring, or intending with a disposition to act according to principles or ends. In other words, a thought with an intent to be carried into an action based on what I want. Other one was the power of control over one's own actions and emotions. Like I said, I don't always like dictionary definitions, so the one up there you'll see is a little bit of my authorship in it, I guess. And speaking of my will, I am referring to the combination of desire, choice, and control that we as human beings have over ourselves and our heart's goals, desires. That brings us to a question, is it wrong to have a will? Now, we're not talking about the legal document. We're talking about is it wrong to have a will? What do you all say? Anybody else want to agree or disagree? If you would, uh, there's a verse in Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Maybe you're going to say I make too big a thing out of this. I'd like to make a deduction from it anyway. Luke chapter 22, verse 42 says this. Christ praying in the garden, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done. My deduction out of that verse is that Christ, in his fleshly body, if I can say that in the right way, had a desire not to die. 
And that desire was not necessarily wrong as long as it was not the master in control. Notice this prayer. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. But here's where the real thing came together. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. That will had to be mastered. So going on on that deduction, I think even we as parents can relate to a child's will in potentially two equally devastating ways. And I use this partly as an illustration and partly as a warning to myself as a parent. There's one set of parents who may never teach and require their child to cheerfully yield their will to the will of another. And that's a very sad thing to see. Some of these children shopping, unfortunately, don't choose. They've never learned to understand to know. They've never learned to yield their will to the will of another. Makes me think of a mother in one of our churches said this. She said, ah, I think it was about a seven-year-old boy. She said, he's too much of a little man for me to spank him. Because if I spanked him, it would hurt his little manhood. Woo! Out, Mom. But there's a second thing as parents that are equally dangerous, is to seek to drive any and all will completely out of a child is equally devastating. You know, as parents, our goal, and I feel God's goal, must be one of teaching, willing and cheerful yielding of the will, not one of inhalation or of making the will itself a sin. And that's my goal for myself as well. You know, I never will get beyond the point of needing to deal with fleshly appetite. For example, as long as I'm alive, I probably will, unless I get some bad health issues, enjoy eating. So I'm going to have to continually remember the verse in Proverbs that says to put a knife in your throat. That doesn't mean that just because the temptation is there that I'm a sinner in that way. It means that I face a choice. I have to make a decision about how much I eat. And furthermore, to build on this a bit more, show me a man without any will at all. I would propose to show you a rag doll. I think will is something God gave. I think it actually was there before the fall, and I'll get that to a bit. The reason that it's a problem now and not before the fall was because it was in tune with God. Therefore, it is not the avoidance of having a will that makes the man, but who or what is the master of my will that determines who I am. I read to you Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 says this, but Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuch that he might not defile himself. Now I don't know again how you are when you read the Old Testament, but I know especially as a young Christian and way too, too recently, I often read about these good people like Daniel, and I'm like, oh, wow, how would it be? How would it be? I really think that's how Daniel was. I think, personally, I think Daniel was a very human young man. What I would also say about Daniel is his will was mastered by the will of the master. 
And it made a tremendous difference in how he related. Do you think Daniel just enjoyed and was looking for the opportunity to go up to this eunuch and say, ha, I ain't going to eat any of your wine. I'm going to drink any of Excuse me. I'm not going to eat any of your meat off the idols. I'm not going to drink any of your wine. Do you think that would have impressed that eunuch? Or for you? I think Daniel went humbly and meekly as a Christian, well, at least Old Testament, and said, Deeply as he knew how, he cannot be exempted from this. Okay, as I go on here, I'm going to propose something to you that I personally, again, think that we have been influenced and affected by evangelical influences more than what we realize in some of these areas. And so I know that for some people here, unless you're a very exceptional group, I'm going to get next thing to controversial. But I would really request if you could do me one favor in my lifetime is that you stay with me for the next 15 minutes before you judge me, okay? Is that a deal? I'll do my best to make this clear. I would like to read to you an excerpt from the book Christie. Is anybody familiar with that book Christie? School teacher boy back in the mountains. Uh, Miss Alice? Okay, fair amount about that. Okay, so for those, the few that may not, Miss Alice was telling Christy some of her history, background. And so she came from a Quaker or friend setting. And Miss Alice's daughter had been given a scarf with a foot-long fringe. So I take it that this scarf had to end with some long strings on the end. Is that right? You know more about scarves than I do, but so she had a scarf with a foot long fringe. Well, Alice's mom, this uh, the young lady's grandma, was horrified by what she considered the extravagant excess of this scarf, and she laid this thing out on the table and was planning to cut it down. Now I would like to read to you and have you consider what Miss Alice said about that. Miss Alice, what she was telling Christy. This sort of thing, the attitude about the fringe, was like that friend who longed for scarlet geraniums in her window boxes, but did not dare grow them. Like my own grandmother, who considered men's suspenders and that new invention, the sewing machine, contractions of the devil. And believe it or not, one old lady I knew had false teeth made and then felt scruples about using them, so she deposited the precious teeth in her top bureau drawer and painfully gummed her way through the rest of her days. Miss Allen goes Miss Alice goes on and says, Yes, it is sad, but don't misunderstand me. Those friends, these people, were God's savory salt. They were erring on the side of goodness, if that erring. It produced great people. What I didn't understand at the time was that they were training their wills in the only way a will can be trained, by practicing giving up what they happen to want at the moment. I imagine there's a lot of different thoughts and ideas in your head about it right now. Rightly so. I'll share a few of mine with you. You know, if these people didn't grow geraniums, if these people didn't have a sewing machine, 
if these people didn't use false teeth, because they thought it would gain them favor or merit with God, I want you to know it was a fail. If these people did not do these things, thinking that it made them more spiritual than their neighbor, it gained them nothing. But if these people did this to subdue and curb the natural pride and selfishness of their own hearts, if they did do these things so that they could more fully bring into captivity their thoughts and bodies to the obedience of Christ, I would propose to you that they are an outstanding example of what it really means to be a Christian. An example of laying down self-will to do his will. Now, before you decide whether you agree or disagree with me, may I read to you from Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 38. There's parallel accounts, in case you want to check up on me, on Matthew 16 and Luke 9 as well. Very similar, somewhat different words. So Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Christ, and when he had called the people unto him and his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, whoever wants to follow in my steps, whoever wants to live the way I live, whoever wants to have the relationship with God that I have, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. Let him not just do whatever he wants to do, but deny him. Take up his cross. Follow me. Then he goes on to make the very strong statement. For whosoever will save his life, for whosoever do those things in life that bring him whatever he wants, lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life, lay down his own ambition, his own desires, his own whatever he wants in life, for my sake, in the gospel, and shall save it. Then he goes on and says, for what shall it profit a man, if he shall gain the whole world, everything in the world, and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man for his soul? Whosoever, therefore, shall be ashamed, unwilling to take a stand with me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in glory of his Father with the holy angels. I feel like I'm on the tightrope now. Let me keep going. I want to be very careful. I am in no way promoting that denial of self and self-will can make a Christian. That's not what I'm saying. Denial of self is not what makes a person, a sinner, acceptable before God. It cannot. Only the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ can reconcile a sinner to his maker. Yet, that said, I am saying, denial of self and rejection of self I am not a Christian. I am saying, without denial of self and rejection of self-will, I am not a Christian. 
Remember those things. I take up Christ's whole life. I I can't think that mine can be anything. You know, there's so much confusion on some of this point, and I think that's why maybe it feels a bit of a tightrope. In Peter chapter 3, verse 16 through 18 there, he tells us how people that are unlearned and unstable rest as the rest as they also do the other scriptures unto their own destruction. In other words, there's a campaign out there, dear friends, to twist the word of God. There's many books being written that have a lot of partial truth. And we have better be careful. You know, there are so many out there who think, who teach, and who act as if salvation could be achieved through personal exertion and good. And dear friends, tonight that's totally impossible, and I hope by God's grace to get on that a little bit more tomorrow. But you can never meet your maker with a clear conscience in all your own personal goodness and exertion. It doesn't work. I've tried it. But there also are equal numbers, equally as deceived, who think, teach, and act as if we have nothing to do but accept Christ's work through an inactive faith. And I want to tell you tonight that is equally as preposterous and impossible. James chapter 2, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren? So a man say, have not worked. Can faith save him? 17. Even so, faith, if it has not worked, is dead. Being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have work. Show me thy faith without thy work, and I will show thee my faith by my work. Verse 20. But wilt thou know, O vain or foolish or stupid man, that faith without works is dead? Okay, going back, I spoke a little bit about before the fall. Will? You know, before the fall, there was no what I call personal awareness. You know, while they had a choice, they did have that, and therefore they had to have a will, right? Without a will, if you follow me, there's no choice. That's the problem we've got. There has to be a will for there to be a choice. So while they had, they had a choice and therefore they had a will, that will was wholly one and in unity with that of their creator. But sin broke this unity and immediately we have man focusing on himself, herself, his desires, and how to protect himself. And thus, we have the birth of self-will as we know it. You know, that instantaneous with the temptation of self-will comes the realization of self. At Adam and Eve, what was the first thing they noticed? Because they noticed that they were. What small child, barely old enough to talk, and they're playing with another child and somebody else reaches for their toy. Mine! About me. It's about what I want. It's about how I can use others to achieve what I want out of life. It's about me. 
It's about how I can somehow manipulate what I am, what I have, and what I desire, and what I want to achieve. It's all about me. I cannot and am not serving any other than self in this state. You know, we have an enemy who doesn't care how many good things we do or say, as long as we say, do and say it in the service of the wrong master. He doesn't care how convincing your repentance thing was, as long as it was an act of self. He doesn't care how much you deprive yourself in life, as long as you are in control. He doesn't care how many deep truths you can expound upon, as long as there's an act of self involved. He doesn't mind how interesting a Sunday school class, as long as it's all about me. You know, as long as it's all about self, as long as self is in control, as long as it's still about me. The hardest thing anybody, the hardest thing I ever did in my life. Yet, we all need is to fully, complete, absolute surrender our will to will to the will of the cause for which we were created, for which Christ sacrificed. The hardest thing any of us can do is to come to the place. To feel that we absolutely have no hope, no way, no possibility of reconciliation with God. Again, dear friends, tonight I'd like to tell you I think that's what's lacking in so many. We've got so many ways, so many programs, so many things. The realization that outside of Christ, the work of Christ, and peace. I'm a just piece of dust, a worthless one, or nothing else. You haven't reached that place. You don't know what it is to be broke people. The only way to surrender is for me to accept Christ as a sacrifice for my sin, my self-will. Christ, I nailed Christ to the cross just as much as me. And allowing his love, that love, to take control of my will and that my will can now be lost in confirmation to his will. With that in mind, I don't want to say this critically, but I would like to tell you of a couple people I know. I don't judge. I think they are Christians. But yet, I would like to use their example, and they live far from here. Don't need to worry. Try to figure out who they are, but just let their lack of a testimony speak to your life. I know of a man who was called to serve in an extremely needed capacity in his church. And the call of the church was as clear as I think it could possibly have been. And you know what he said? He said, I can't do it. It's not my plan for my life. He said, 
Nova lady. She wanted a husband. She got him. He got her. I'm not trying to make her sound bad. She wanted a family. God blessed her with a family. She wanted to adopt a special needs child. Able to do that. Last time I saw this lady, one of the saddest people I know. What happens if we follow our will? We self-destruct. You know, dear friends, it's only as we come to the end of, it's only as I come to the end of myself. The end of self. My self-will that God can do his work in me. If there's self in my heart, if there's my will is being followed by my life, I built a wall that God cannot and will not work in such a life. It is only that I surrender all. Yes, even my will, which includes my dreams, my plans, my likes, my dislikes, that I can give. Excuse me, that I can have his life within me. You know, it's only as I, like Daniel, purpose in my heart to have a settled, excuse me, settled and steadfast purpose that all I have, all I am, and all I ever hope to be is no longer mine. And it's no longer in my control, but it's wholly yielded to him. It's only at that point, dear friends, that I can begin to understand what true freedom in life is all about. I have. You know, so often I find myself and also others saying or thinking about a choice or a decision that we face. You know, we look at this choice, this decision, and we say, oh, well, it's not wrong. There's no scripture against it. It isn't sin. And then the next step in that logic is something like this. If it isn't sin, it must be all right for me to do it. You know, if it's about me, if it's my self-will, there is nothing right about it regardless of how inoffensive the thing itself. Proverbs 21 verse 4, it tells us that even the plowing of the wicked is sin. Now, can you think of something less wrong to do than plow a field? I almost can't. I mean, how are people supposed to eat without plowing them? Absolutely nothing wrong with plowing it. But I'm plowing that field. Live for self. It is this. So I need to be real careful here. But in its right context, and I hope you're understanding me, I'm not saying that we can go commit sinful actions and excuse them. Absolutely not. But in its real part of the issue, sin is more about my motivating master than it is about my actions. Sin is more about my motivating master than it is about my actions, again, not to excuse action. And for those of us who have grown up in Christian settings, this is where this subject can get very technical. You know, potentially, the actions of self-will and of a yielded will may appear the same but the motives are radically different. Do you understand me? Potentially, 
you may have two people doing almost the exact external thing. But one is doing it in self-will, and the other one is doing it because he's following God. Motives are so radically different. And you know, because we grew up in Christian settings, and nothing against that, praise God if you have, and I praise him sincerely that I have. But because we have this knowledge of God, because we have this knowledge of his word, we can see what should be. And so therefore, I often find myself, and again I see others, going about to try to grow the proper fruit without having the proper We try to grow the proper fruit without having the proper root. Does this ever lead to confusion? I'd like to contrast that somehow this works. And uh, because of the different things, I just have words here. But I'd like for you to think of two different trees. So I'm just going to go on my right and the left. So I'm going to have my bad tree over here and my good tree over here, okay? Not for any other reason, because that's the way I'm turned. Okay. So let's look at this. We have two options in life, two choices, two paths. Self or surrender to God. I'd like to contrast this. Self is my will set in self-will. To please my own self. Surrender to God means that my will is conformed to his will. No longer mine. It's moldable, shapeable. And I do this so that I can please my creator and Savior. Now for the contrast. Self is characterized by stubbornness, inconsistency, and pride. Self characterized by stubbornness, inconsistency, and pride. Surrender to God is characterized by Submission, consistency, and humility. Now let's look at how these trees. grew up in a Christian home. I know what the Bible teaches. I know how I should live. And so I look over here on my good tree, and I see the fruit of love in, sincere, in the lives of sincere Christians. And I say, of course, I'm talking agape. Well, sometimes we get fuzzy about what love is and what don't. Agape love is a selfless love, yet also a love with requirements, much like to avoid them. So I look at love and I say, oh, love like Christ. Love like those Christians have. That's good. But I'm not willing to deal with the root of self, with that self-will. And so I say, ah, what can I do about this on my own? And so I go over to my tree and I say, you know what? I can take on this fruit called liberalism. Liberalism is a pretty nice substitute for love. It means anything goes. I don't judge others. It's kind of cozy, kind of nice, warm and fuzzy. And after all, I don't. It's not tough to love in a liberal society. I I look over here to this tree, and I see a fruit called faith and hope. And I say, well, you know what? You go to Hebrews 11, you see what faith did for Abraham, you see what hope beyond the group. Some of that on my tree, but I still 
I'm still not willing to give up my way, God. I'm still not willing to say, God, you can just have to do whatever. So I go over to my tree. I make a fruit. And I tape it up there. I call that fruit gumption. I look over to this tree, and I see that reverence and awe are beautiful things. I look in awe at the, at the Father to trust my life to Him. See how Christ did that? I say, ah, awe. I, I could use, you know, there's, there's good, good side to this thing. So what can I put on my tree over here? So I come up with something that I think is fear, and I go, and especially sensitive people problem with this one. They have this fear and trembling way, and they're always doubting and distrusting. They take this thing on there. Maybe it's reverence. And I look over to the positive tree. And I see honor and respect as very good things. Not only to God, but even among people. Honor and respect, beautiful fruit. So necessary in the life of a true Christian. Again, honor and respect. Uh, I could have the benefits without the sacrifice. So I grow something, and I make this fruit, and I go over and take it to my tree, and I call it conservative. I look at the fruit of righteousness, the righteousness of God, and I say, ah, that's a good fruit. What can I put on my tree to match it? So I come up with self-righteousness. You know, the righteousness of God doesn't let any room for pride. The righteousness of God means that I have to esteem others better than myself. You know what? Throw the fruit of self-righteousness and take it to my tree. That's a lot of stuff. I I can have a lot of that. I feel pretty good about it. Even just the farmer. You see the fruit of caring. How Christ had compassion. For the multitudes, how he fed them, how he healed them, how other true Christians are willing to go out of the way. And I say, oh, caring. Yeah, definitely. I need that fruit on my tree. And so I manufacture this caring attitude. What I end up doing by doing that very thing is I end up using others. In fact, get this. In Christian counseling, there's now a term called dependency syndrome basically means that a counselor doesn't know who he is without somebody to counsel. I thought if I really care for someone and I really help them, I'm more than happy to be on the point of meeting. But all of a sudden over in this tree, this uses other fruit. I'm going to have to keep you in bondage, so I've got something to depend on. Okay, we keep going. We have the good fruit over here, concern of sin. A very good fruit. And so again, if I'm unwilling to deal with self-will, I look at that fruit and I say, oh, I need something to match on my tree. So I come up with this thing called a critical and judgmental attitude. And maybe I should right now just tell you the difference between concern of sin and a critical and judgmental attitude. You know, the, the concern of sin fruit comes to you and says, brother or sister, it appears to me that you're struggling in what." How can I help you in your Christian life? How can I be part of the resolution? A critical judgmental spirit comes up and says, ah, this looks pretty good. I tape it to my tree and I go to the brother and I say, you, 
you've got a problem in your life, you know, if, if you shape up, the rest of us will be in good shape. Uh, things are pretty good except for you. Just get over it. Get moving on. Let's get it done. So the one walked. The other one judged. Okay, honesty and frankness. Everybody that knows me, that knows that maybe value these. I'm not saying I hit that right. But honesty and frankness, beautiful fruit. If you have an honest and frank person, friend, you know exactly where they're at. Christ, honest and frank. Very kind to the sinner, but yet clear in what sin was. I end up with, when I try that process with self in my life, I end up with harshness and So again, I look over here, and I see strength in God, stability, consistency. Ah, that person is esteemed because they're stable. Well, I need a matching fruit to take on my tree, so I come up with intractable, intractable in opinion. So now, I've got these convictions, and I don't care what you think, what you say, how you feel. This is how it is, my way or the highway. Now, I'm stable as well. The other side, we have a submissive spirit, something so workable, something so yielding, so potentially, I don't want to deal with self. I'll come up with something I call an ingratiating intent. Now, I've simply brought politics into the church. I cozy up to this person. The tree on the left, the list there with self, leads to all kinds of confusion. This pretending of right is the one thing that has destroyed more churches and homes and lives than persecution ever can. This pretending that I'm one thing, but in reality I've got all these rotten fruit taped to my tree. You know, while I, while you may fool yourself into thinking that the fruit looks the same, the reality, reality of it is it's a totally different fruit with a totally different flavor, with a totally different result. How really is it? How really is it? with you. Does my will confirm and promote myself? Is my will conformed to God's will, just doing His will? Without death to the desires of the flesh, there can be no continuing life of the Spirit. Without coming to the end of self, there can be no beginning with God. Without yielding of self-will, there can be no acceptance of God's will. And I hope you understand. But tonight, unless you're willing to do whatever the call of God brings into your life, am I training my will? 
in the only way a will can be trained. By denying my by taking up my cross daily, following Christ. Do you have your will in order? Come on. Why am I here? Where am I going? Father, thank you so much for your grace, for your patience, for your long-suffering. Thank you so much for bringing things into our lives, bring us to the end of ourselves, to help us really realize how much self-will sometimes we have. And I, Lord, I pray, begin with me, just mold, break any self-will in my heart. Bring those circumstances, whatever they might be, to form me into your image and into your will. And I would pray for the same for each one here. Whatever it takes, Lord, eternity is too serious. Solid an issue, spend pretending, growing the wrong, the right fruit. We so much need your help. Send your spirit, Lord, and do your work. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't want to take a lot of time, but I just briefly like to open it up for any testimony or correction. I know it's a bit of a potentially sticky subject, and I in no way want to misdirect. So if there's any correction, feel free with Come back and make that noise. Why don't we stand and sing the song and brother Steve with you?
for prayer. Father, we thank thee this evening for the way of holiness and righteousness, the way of complete surrender to thee. We're thankful, Lord, for the way of peace as we yield ourselves into the hands of God. We pray tonight as I will again turn the great searchlight of heaven upon our hearts Lord, that thou wilt try the reins of our hearts and see if there be any wicked way within us. Search us, dear Lord, and help us that each one of us might be properly prepared and getting ready for that last great day. Just thank thee for thy word. Thank thee for thy truth. And we look to thee for guidance and victory tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.